0: Hey, this is Hope Larson, and you're listening to The Great Big Beautiful Podcast.
1: Have
0: you ever to Disneyland? Affirmative. That was definitely an e-ticket. I can't believe all the new gadgets they've got now. For a while, we didn't even have a house phone, not to mention laser discs. High def TV.
2: You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show,
0: I think you have to keep like I I let people know like that I'm collecting puns. So I'm like, <laughs> if you say a pun, I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna ask you politely if I can use that pun. <laughs> uh, but it is funny because once you start writing them, it kind of just flows like. My favorite badge in the book is the That's Accordion to You badge. Uh, Yes. And that's just like, that just kind of fell out of the sky. And I was like, that is like (laughs) my favorite thing that I've written in a really long time.
2: Here are your hosts,
3: Jamie Green and Justin Connors. This is The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The GBB Podcast, as well as anywhere you get your podcasts from and your apps. Merry, I guess I don't want to, I was going to say Merry Christmas. Happy, I don't know, I, I'm just so excited. Christmas is coming up really quick for us at the time of recording this, and I know you may be listening to this like July, and you're to be like, what is this guy talking about? <laughs> but <laughs> we're at Christmas time. How you doing? How you doing? James?
2: Oh, I'm doing fine. Thanks for confusing everybody about, you know, calendar stuff.
3: Hey, look, if they're listening in July, yeah. it's Christmas in July. So There
2: works. you go. So happy holidays, happy new year, happy 4th of July, Memorial happy Day, everything. Valentine's Day. Let's yeah. just cover it all.
3: <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Um, so this week, Jamie, we did this interview a little bit ago, yeah. but but we we didn't want to hold off on this one anymore, so we're putting it out this week. You talked to Marika Tamaki. Yeah. I, I, I said it right, right? I did it right. <laughs> you I never did. pronounce names right. No, that's okay.
2: I'm, I'm awful with names too. Yes, Mariko Tamaki. Um, I talked to her an unforgivable number of weeks ago. Uh, we just got caught up with a lot of uh, episodes in the can that we had to release for, for one reason or another. and. Um, so I apologize, uh, Mariko, that this took so long to get out, but here we are, everybody. Nobody else knew that. So I didn't actually have to say any of that, but, um, Mariko. Hey, t- it's
3: good to acknowledge just in
2: case she's, that's looking, right,
1: right. That's
3: right.
2: <laughs> so, um, we're talking to her today because, um, the newest book she has out is the first of a series. And if anybody knows the Lumberjanes comic book and the graphic novels, um, first of all, if you don't know them, why don't you know them? Go pick them up right away. Um, But it's a... It, it's an amazing, uh, comic book series that they've just now turned into a series of middle grade novels. Uh, and, she, uh, Marika Tamaki is writing them. And so the first one is out, I believe, uh, there's going to be four of them. Each one sort of focusing on one of the main characters of the Lumberjanes, Um, and the first book out is Unicorn Power. Um, and it's, just so much fun. Like if you, if you like the lumberjane stories, if you like those characters, if you like the the graphic novels, like pick up this, this book and follow through with the series, because it's just so true to the characters. And it's just so much fun. Like you can tell reading this, that she just had a blast writing it. Um, So I highly, highly, highly recommend the book. Um, But we also talk about a bunch of other things. So um, she's, Recently, um, pretty well known for a book called This One Summer, um, a graphic novel that she did with her cousin, Jillian Tamaki. Um, Mariko wrote it, Jillian drew it. Um, That book um, is mostly in the news for being, I think, the most banned book in the country for this year. Yeah, Um, (laughs) And ironically, it also won. It was also the first graphic novel that won the Caldecott honor. Um, It won a Caldecott honor and it won the Prince honor in 2015. Um, So it was sort of groundbreaking in that year just because it was the first graphic novel to win a Caldecott. Um, Mm -hmm. And Caldecott's, if you don't know, are typically given to picture books. Um, you right. know, like the 30, 40 page picture books that are for really young readers or, you know, read aloud to young readers. And so this kind of made a splash because this book is not intended for the picture book crowd. Um, this is a book that um, is really targeting older kids, like middle school, um, younger high school. Uh, it, it touches on a lot of uh, more serious topics uh it's basically you know the the nutshell description of that book is it's a coming of age story between two girls um but it touches on a lot of topics that i think a lot of parents were upset that it got a caldecott because um they saw the caldecott as this book this award that went to picture books um and uh this one summer does not fit that mold uh and in the years since it has become a mainstay on banned book lists and challenged books in school districts um, and in school libraries. Um, Yeah, we're not even going to get into that because I think it's just such a ridiculous topic that in 2017 and 2018, we're still banning books. We're still telling our kids what they can and cannot read or can and cannot even get their hands on to choose whether they want to read it. Um, All that to say, we do talk about some of that with mariko in this conversation um we talk about the lumberjanes we talk about this one summer we talk about um growing up mixed heritage she's half japanese and she has said you know before that when she was growing up like that was just never part of her upbringing like she never really saw herself as part japanese part Mm -hmm. canadian um and so uh that's that's sort of a bit personal to me because of my kids who are mixed heritage so we talk a little bit about Mm -hmm. that um and uh we kind of cover the spectrum we it's a it's a really good conversation we have so i hope you enjoy it
3: right i can't wait to hear that part because i I could really see that with her living in toronto Mm -hmm. because toronto is such a diverse city right so you would you would grow up and you just probably identify as canadian if you grew up there not not in all cases but in her case obviously so that'd be that's really interesting i can't wait to hear it too because i'll be listening just as you're listening <laughs>
2: yes because this Ooh, was just cool. this was another just me so yes, justin's justin's you know fallen behind i i, yeah. I don't know what's <laughs> up with them guys really
3: yeah he just yeah he, he's he got a lot on <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys we're gonna go play that interview for you right now i hope you enjoy
2: Mariko, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. It's just an honor to have you here.
0: Well, thanks for having me.
2: Um, I w- wanted to start off with the Lumberjanes book since it's the newest one you've got out. Um, but yep. how did you first get uh, attached to the Lumberjanes?
0: I mean, I was previously like a huge fan of the Lumberjanes. Like, I was kind of an obsessive fan of the Lumberjanes for a very long time. And then, uh, yeah, one day I got an email from my agent and I was traveling and she was like, are you like a, do you know anything with the lumberjanes? And I was like, <laughs> yes, I do. And I was like, I am not leaving my hotel room until you get back to me and tell me what this is. So I was super excited. I basically just like sat in my hotel room for two hours. Yeah. I- and
1: like,
2: I don't blame you do i would too if i got a you know cryptic message like that about you yeah know, possibly writing for the lumberjanes
0: <laughs> it's a really good cryptic message to get like do you want to do this really awesome thing i was like yes i do of course i do yeah
2: well i mean so it was exciting but was it intimidating at all because i mean those are characters who already have like very clearly defined voices and you know you're you're stepping into this world that people feel like they already know these characters
0: Yeah. I mean, there was a part of me that was kind of into it for that reason. I really liked the idea. Like, first of all, I really loved the whole world and I loved the characters. So there wasn't anything about it that I felt like I didn't get. Like, I totally felt like I was on the same page as the creators in terms of what they were trying to do. And so it actually felt very familiar. Like it's a very feminist queer positive space and I felt like I can totally work with this like it was almost like I was just being handed this amazing thing as opposed to like being intimidated intimidated by the fact that it was an amazing thing yeah and uh I I think my main concern was like I was like I don't know how this works like are all the lumberjanes creators like down with this and so I was like I need to look like (laughs) I had like a meeting with the Boom Studios people and Mm -hmm. Abrams and uh, Shannon Waters was there. And I was like, I'm going to look Shannon Waters in the eye. And if she (laughs) blinks, I'm not doing it. (laughs) But she was super, she was like, look, it's going to be great. Like, don't worry about it. And as soon as I had, um, as soon as I got sort of the okay to do it, I was like, I know exactly what the story is going to be. It was like a very easy transition into working on the books.
2: Yeah. Uh, so um, Brooke Allen did the illustrations for the book, and she also works on the comic. But, I mean, did you have any sort of, was there collaboration, or did you pick anyone else's brain? Like, did you sit down with Noelle or Grace and say, okay, now what do you guys think?
0: Uh, well, I, I had I had access to Boom Studios, so I had access to the editors, mm-hmm. uh, like the current editors of the Lumberjane comics, and I, was, I knew that Brooklyn would be doing uh, the illustrations, so I knew that I had... That connection, And actually, you know, so I had like the best resource in the world as to like all of the things that are lumberjanes. Like, right. you know, like I was like, I don't know if I know all the cabins, <laughs> you know, like all the kind of like background rules and stuff like that. So I had access to them, um, which was really great. And uh, Whitney and Daphna are super amazing. And I also had amazing editors at Abrams, uh, as Susan and Erica. So I was like, OK, I have like a really good team. Uh, and then Brooklyn and I basically talked and, and I said, you know, like, do I am going to write this keeping in mind that there's going to be illustrations. So keeping in mind that there are some things that I think, you know, like some moments that I thought going into the script could probably work really well as an illustration. But I was like, I leave the final decision to you. Right. And they ended up doing they ended up making a lot of really amazing choices. Like there's a couple pages that are actually. Like where the text kind of drops off and moves into an illustration in this very organic way, which I was sort of hoping would happen. And mm-hmm. I think it's is what we ended up with.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's a beautiful book, just the way that they've put it together. I mean, aside from the illustrations, just the the I guess the packaging, you could say, you know, like the the design of the pages and how it all I mean, just it's it's a joy to read and then you know like the, the the look and feel of it just make it that much more of a pleasure to sort of just turn the pages physically you know what I mean if that makes sense yeah.
0: and I love I mean I've never done like a series in this way so it's so cool to see that kind of branding of like this yeah. is what all the books will look like and I really love the I mean I love in the original comics like that kind of that kind of introduction to the badges that flows into the story. And so all the things that we really liked about the comics were things that we were able to do in the book, yeah, um, including to have like a, you know, like a appendix of all the badges at the back of the book, which are like some of my favorite things <laughs> are did, the badges.
2: What kind of blows my mind is the the pun power that goes into all of the badge names. And I'm wondering, did, uh, did you run out of puns? I mean, like that's that more than anything, I think is is what was impressive to me.
0: I think you have to keep, like I, I let people know like that I'm collecting puns. So I'm like, <laughs> if you say a pun, I'm gonna tell you. I'm going to ask you politely if I can use that pun. Uh, But it is funny because once you start writing them, it kind of just flows. Like, my favorite badge in the book is the That's Accordion to You badge. Uh, Yes. And that's just like, that just kind of fell out of the sky. And I was like, that is like (laughs) my favorite thing that I've written in a really long time. So, and it's funny because I know a lot of people who like, hate puns, but are able to write puns very easily. So it's a very odd skill. Yeah. Uh, but now that I started doing it, like, uh, I mean, I saw a sign the other day. I was walking down the street and it said, uh, you want a pizza me? It was like a pizza place. <laughs> and I was like, God, that's so good. File that <laughs> one away. I, I know. Now I just really appreciate them. I'm just like, that's fabulous.
2: <laughs> Do you have a favorite Lumberjane to write?
0: Um, I think, well, because each of the books kind of focuses on, on its own lumberjane, I think I sort of find each character as I'm working on them. So the first book is April and focuses on April and the second book is focusing more on Joe. Mm -hmm. And so I have like, sort of like, you know, it's like you treat them like they're all your children and then you have like special days with each, with each of them. Uh, so, and then the next one is Ripley and it's been, I think it's going to be fun because Joe is more serious to spend a book with someone who's you know a little sillier which i really enjoy so i love i love each of their unique characteristics and i think it's really i love that their characteristics are are such that they're they don't necessarily create conflict like i think that there's this kind of trope in a lot of fiction especially for younger kids that it's kind of like this oil and water thing Mm -hmm. of like oh well one personality will automatically aggravate another and i think that it's kind of nice to have a series where all of their personalities work together they don't necessarily like you know it doesn't dim any of them to have them all together but they all work together to be like this unique unit
1: yeah
2: um a whole book with ripley might kind of blow my mind though
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of like a lot of exclamation <laughs>
2: yes a lot of exclamation a lot of punctuation yeah um,
0: i love that so
2: are you doing five books at least
0: uh, it's four books okay Uh, so we're going to, I mean, the thing is, is like, once we started thinking about it, you're like, Oh my God, I can think of so many that we could do, but it's been, it's been nice to have like to sort of think of them as like a solid four Yeah. and to get like sort of to establish some things in the beginning that we'll sort of follow through with as each book continues. Um, so it's been really great. Yeah. I mean, I kind of like the more I'm writing them, I'm kind of falling in love with like like, I really love Rosie, and I love Bear Woman. So I'm kind of falling in love with the, like, the sort of... The
2: supporting cast.
0: Know, supporting cast, exactly, is yeah. going.
2: Yeah. No, I um, I told my daughter, I was like, because she, she wanted to grab it out of my hands when the book first arrived. I was like, I, <laughs> I get to read it first, because I have to talk to her. But, uh, yeah, she was just chomping at the bit to get it. And uh, as I was reading it, I was like, this just... I haven't had this much fun reading a book in a long, long time. Like, it was just a joy, a joy to read. It was so much fun.
0: Yeah, and I really wanted it to be, like, something that the chapters are really short so that you can do it as, like, a bedtime thing when you're, like, I'm just going to read one chapter, and it's, like, four pages, and then you go to bed. Or it's something that you can just, like, you know, just dive into and read the whole thing. Uh, And I wanted it to be something that – I mean, I – You know this is like the first book that I've ever done that I could read like I did a reading at um, a library in Berkeley yesterday and this woman came up and said is it okay for my four-year-old to be here and I was like (laughs) "Yes, (laughs) I can almost never say that but today (laughs) I can say your four-year-old can definitely be here
2: (laughs) that's awesome that's really cool Um, but okay so along those same lines I guess when you're writing books like the lumberjanes or like this one summer are you consciously thinking of young Mariko? Like, are you are you writing books that you would have wanted as a kid?
0: Um, I don't think I was with this one summer, With this one summer I was really kind of focused on that story and just telling that that story accurately. But yeah. I think with The Lumberjanes, I am hyper aware that I that these books didn't exist when I was a kid. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, like I was such a voracious reader when I was younger. And I was obsessed with Harriet the Spy and like the mixed up files of Miss Basil E. Frank Weiler, like all of those books. So I definitely love the idea of creating a book that has queer characters and gender queer characters and all of these things in it Mm -hmm. that are still like sort of like the kinds of, um, I mean, also like the one thing that used to always upset me when I was a kid was that every book that I liked as a kid, there would be a part in the story where, someone would do something mean to somebody else, which was always so traumatizing for me. And I love that that's not part of these books. Like, yeah. I'm aware that I'm creating something that if I was 10, I would, I would be so into it.
2: Yeah. Um, those characters, though, I mean, characters that you populate your stories with and that are becoming, thankfully, a lot more common nowadays, they weren't around at all like you never saw queer characters you never saw characters of color you never i mean it was when we were kids it was you know you saw the same type of person again and again sure um how do you think your childhood though would have been different if you had access to books like these like if there were somebody like you writing then and you had those books to to voraciously just tear through
0: i don't know i mean i think that uh I think it would have been really great to not have i mean my introduction to like queer characters was like in the pulp novels that my mom left lying around the house (laughs) and there would periodically be a lesbian character like an evil lesbian character in the background (laughs) um i think it would have just been really nice and affirming and it would have felt like like less of a secret which i think is really great like i think it's not about you know it's not about making a decision about these things when you're a kid or, you know, I think that there's this notion that it's going to like influence children to like make a decision that they wouldn't otherwise make. And right. truth is that the decision is there. It's just a matter of how you feel about it. And if it was something that, I mean, I know many kids now who like little boys who wear nail polish and, you know, sparkly things. And I, my, uh, my girlfriend has a, a cousin who like bedazzled his bicycle helmet the last time we (laughs) saw him. Nice,
1: nice. You know,
0: and it doesn't mean anything. It just means that like that he's free to make more decisions and to, you know, explore more things. Like I also think that this is a great book for girls and for boys to be able to sort of look at, Mm -hmm. you know, to have a little like another layer of empathy or sympathy for characters outside of just, you know, that are, just a reflection of you. Yeah, right? Like, right. I think that that's amazing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, it's always been critical, but they've never had it. And I think one of the greatest things, one of the greatest, you, you know, sea changes, I guess, that I've seen in young adult and books for kids is that, these characters are showing up with a little bit more regularity, you know. And it's—I yeah. think even for kids who, you know, this doesn't resonate with. Maybe you know they like, okay, I understand that this exists and there are people like this, but that's not me. I think it's still important for those kids to see, you know. I mean, it's—it's—it's—it's it, it's, it's, it's important for everybody to see these characters as as who they are and that they're there, you know, and to not keep sweeping them under the rug. So I—I I love to see that it's—it's. It's, becoming a little bit more common in books for kids.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's really great. I think it's like a culture of like, you know, versus like, you know, when I was a kid, anything you did that made you stand out from anybody else or made it like that possible that you were different from anybody else was like automatically a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And the idea of sort of sowing the seeds of a culture that says, you know, if you come across somebody who's different, you know, that's okay. Yeah. Or it's awesome. You know, like that that's a possibility I think is you know, it's, it's, um, you know, yeah. would be great. <laughs>
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, but when it comes to writing, one of the, I guess, traditional pieces of advice is to write what you know. Um, obviously that cannot be a limiting factor for you. It can't be your ceiling. We wouldn't have fantasy. We wouldn't have science fiction, you know? Um, sure. but what about those writers who want to include those perspectives or points of view that are totally foreign to their own experiences, to their own lives? Uh, this, I mean, it, it, this pops up and it's been a sensitive issue lately. So I wonder what your advice would be if, like, if if a, if a writer were to come to you and say, "Listen, I'm straight, but I really want to include a queer character. Like, is that okay? Is that cool? What do you say to them?"
0: Well, I think there's like a bunch of things. I mean, I, first of all, I think like you are responsible for the things that you write. Um, I've actually had many people <laughs> I've curiously had many people come up and ask me if it's okay if they create a lesbian character like <laughs> a straight person and my response to them is like I'm not the gatekeeper of this <laughs> like, I don't get to give you like a flag that yeah. says that everything is cool I think you're responsible and you have to do research, all writers have to do research to make sure, sure that what they're representing within the current you know, cultural social context that we live in is not necessarily like you know, not just that it's it's that not just that it's not, you know, contributing to further stereotype. Like if you have like the quirky gay character in the background, you know, yeah. and like all quirky gay characters there have been before. So you have to consider that and you have to consider that you know something about the characters that you're including in your books and that 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 knowledge is specific. So like if you have a character and you're like he's Chinese. It's like, well, China's a big place. Right. Like where is he from in China? What is it, you know, what was his experience? You know, is he like a, you know, is he a second generation? Is he first generation if he's living in the United States? Like all of these things, you know, you should know. Mm -hmm. You should be specific about the thing that you're including. And then the other thing I say is that I think there's a sort of general wariness that says, you know, we don't want to limit our ability to write the things that we write. So if you want to write about a character who is, say, like Asian and you're not Asian, the thing that I would say is, you know, within the current cultural context, there has been for some Communities a real lack of representation a real lack of representation of different writers that come from different cultural backgrounds so if you have a certain privilege that lets you like gives you access to being published and then You want to be the voice of of a community that hasn't been accurately represented in the past I guess I would just ask, you know, why that is a thing that you want Yeah, you know, like I think that I don't think that writing like if you are for example, if you're a white straight woman and I don't think that that's a limited perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, like I don't think that you're limited in the kinds of stories you can tell as a white straight woman. Like, I think that there's lots of stories there for you. And so if you're like, well, but I really, really want to write a book about, you know, about a Korean, you know, immigrant or I want to write a book about like a, you know, Korean person in America, or any other experience like i just always i'm curious as to why like what is it about that what is it about that story that you feel like you have a unique perspective on and if your unique perspective is the perspective of the majority that might not be so unique right you know what i mean yeah so i mean and i always say to people like that's my opinion on it that's like where i come from on it and i think it's far more interesting to say or you know especially in our current you know so social cultural context to say like, here's a lot, there's a lot of people who haven't had a chance to tell these stories. So before you as a majority come in to decide that this is the story you want to tell, maybe you want to consider all of the voices that have been silenced mm-hmm. for a very long time. And we need, we, you know, we'd need more books. Like I have been trying really hard over the past year to really go outside of what is like the sort of standard, you know, literary canon even the new literary canon and try to find different writers and different voices and there is something really distinct and resonant i mean i just read um don dumont's book she's a canadian uh i believe first nations writer okay uh and it was really stunning like it was really an incredible thing to get to read um and i was really glad that the book is out there you know yeah. like so, uh, yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: No, absolutely. Um,
0: Sorry, I, she's a... Oh, no, that's not right. I'm trying to look up and see what see her specific bio, but her name is Don Dumont, and the book that I read was called Glass Beads, and it's incredible. Okay.
2: I'll add it to the list, my ever-growing yeah. list.
0: <laughs> yeah. Amazing first so, station writer.
2: I, uh I watched your keynote speech from this year's queers and comics conference. (laughs) It was very good. I I really, I recommend everybody go watch it. It's on YouTube. I'll link to it. Um, But one of the things that fascinated me to learn uh, was that when you were a kid, you didn't really see yourself as having a mixed heritage. Uh, You didn't necessarily see yourself as quote unquote, part Japanese and part, part Canadian. Right. Uh, um, Looking back, is there a part of you that wishes that, that had been more part of your life that that you know, you had identified as that? Or do you not really think that you missed anything?
0: I mean, I'm sure I did miss something, but I can't go back and change your childhood. I mean, I, I think that I was very, uh, I think I had a very distinct connection to my cultural heritage, because I had a very distinct parentage. And they had, you know, a very different take on it. Like, you know, in my family, it wasn't something like the shortest way to say it is it wasn't a big deal. It yeah. was a big deal, but like in like the sort of like language of my family, it was just like, look, you're Japanese, you're part of your family is Japanese. You know, so so what. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it was sort of like and then as I got older, I was like it feels like there's something significant about that. It feels <laughs> like it feels like there is more a than a footnote. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? But I think that it was like I had a very distinct approach to it and I think that A lot of my writing is influenced by kind of like not having something that's taken for granted. Like the identity is something that you kind of have to figure out as opposed to something that you're just automatically are.
2: Yeah. There's a reason I ask. And it's so my wife is Chinese. And so my kids are obviously mixed. Um, And it's not uncommon for them today to see other mixed kids. I mean, there's other mixed kids in their classroom. You know, I see it. They see it everywhere. And so it's not... It's not like they get pointed at or ridiculed or said, why are you different? You know, that kind of thing. Um, But I I wonder, you know, at what point, if at all, they're going to sort of come to that, um, I guess, self-discovery. You know, like, okay, who is it that I really am? Where do I come from? Sure. Uh, and, and I was just wondering what your experience was, because it wasn't like from what I heard you say in that speech is that it wasn't part of your childhood. Whereas for my kids, it, it very much is, you know, like they've been to China a couple of times. They you oh, know, that's awesome. they, they have a very strong connection to to, you know, their mother's heritage. Um, and I'm wondering, especially because it's not being done in isolation, you know, because they have other kids who are mixed race, mixed culture or have friends who, you know, their parents are same sex. And so it's it's becoming the norm. And I'm wondering if we're turning a corner, I guess, where kids are not going to have that period of their life where they're just like, who am I? You know, the dark emo period where they're like, they have to figure it out because nobody told them up until that point.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's the same with, you know, with sexuality. I think the idea that something will be this like thing that you keep in the attic is like less and less the case. Yeah. Like, I think that now there's, I mean, when I was a kid, there weren't a lot of mixed kids. I mean, there were a lot of mixed kids in my family, but there weren't a lot of mixed kids like when I went to school. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that that's kind of amazing that it's, that it's changing like that. And I think there's more of a discussion about, you know, that it's more complicated than just like you're Chinese. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that, that conversation is changing. And, um, I mean, I think it's amazing even just, you know, like, um, like, I was working for this organization when I was in Toronto, that was kind of trying to reevaluate the whole family tree exercise, that kind of like, I'm here, and I'm related to these two people, and biologically related to these two people, and they were sort of trying to sort of remap that conversation of like, here's all the people in my life, and here's the people who are raising me, and here's the people who are like, really important to me, as opposed to like, really essentializing this kind of like you know
1: yeah.
0: biological heritage type thing. Interesting. So I think that there's more conversations about it, which I think is really great. You know, there's not that like it's almost like, you know, and no one's going to be horrified if somebody says something that's outside the status quo. Like right. it's a little easier now, you know. Yeah. Which I think is really great.
2: Yeah. And I don't I don't know if I don't know if our experience or her experience, you know, living it is, is unique just because of where we live. You know, we live outside of D.C., so it's a very international area. Sure. Um, I don't know if it's unique because of that or if it really is more widespread. and Maybe people just aren't mentioning it as much, you know, but I, I don't because I don't know if like if you were to go to Kansas or Idaho, whether it would be the same situation, you know, um, but it, it is refreshing to at least see the changes here compared to when I was a kid.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's really I mean, it is kind of funny when you kind of go to different parts of either Canada or the U.S. and you're like, oh, not everybody thinks the same thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in every part of the country. Yeah. But I I mean, I feel like it's, you know, I mean, it is interesting because I, you know, when uh, when this one summer was banned or was challenged as many times as it was last year, you could see that there's like more conversation happening, yeah. that there's publishers who feel more and more comfortable, comfortable publishing books that are discussing subjects that another population feels are taboo and inappropriate. So now you have this conflict. You know, now you have these like two conversations coming up against each other. And I am a firm believer. Uh, I used to study uh, linguistics, and there was this woman, Deborah Cameron, who would say, uh, that conflict is, is a sign of change, right? Like, as long as everything is status quo and everybody agrees, there's no conflict. Everybody right. disagrees that this is the way things are. When you have a shift in opinion and you have people being more vocal about it, that's when you see conflict.
2: Right. Is is that, you know, the, the fact that This One Summer is, you know, the, the most challenged book, the most banned book, is that a badge of honor or is it just infuriating that that's where we still are or a huge portion of the society still is?
0: It's both. I mean, I think on the one hand, it's a weird thing because when I get introduced with it, I get applause. Most <laughs> everywhere I go, I get applause. So on that level, and it it's also because like, you know, then you're sort of standing in like the, like, I'm in really good company, right? Like Sherman Alexie sure. has also, you know, held this, this place. So I feel like I'm more Sherman Alexie. Right. <laughs> and I'm exciting. Um, but at the same time, I think you know, it is unfortunate because I, you know, if you think of, especially in terms of young readers that, you know, libraries in public libraries and school libraries are spaces where kids have access to knowledge and stories. And, you know, the idea that that, that knowledge is being censored Mm -hmm. and, you know, the fact that the book is, the, the book is banned has been uh, banned and also been uh, challenged many times but also there's this whole underground process whereby librarians and teachers will just take books of, off of shelves right and just like put it under the desk right as a way of not having to deal with it right. and i think that's you know that's sad that's unfortunate because it also becomes a question of privilege when you know people say oh it must increase your book sales and it's like yeah that's great unless you can't afford to buy the book exactly Right. And then you just don't have access to it. So really it's a way of picking on people who, you know, don't have the money to just go and buy whatever books they want to read.
2: Yep. Yeah. Probably the people who need to read those books the most.
0: Sure. Why not?
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, but so it's been challenged. It's been banned yet. The flip side of that is that it's also won some of the highest honors that there are. Um, Do those awards, how have they, have they changed the way that you work? You know, I mean, so winning something like the Caldecott will probably increase your fans or the public's expectations for your next book or your next thing. But did it make it harder for you to judge your own work, too?
0: Um, I mean, I think it's it's really great to have. I mean, the way that you could see it is like that someone's telling you like that you're on the right track or that you have done something that they appreciate, which is really great. I think the trickiest is to remember the process that brought brought you to that book in the first place.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, both, uh, a lot of both skim and this one summer were books when, you know, Jillian and I created them that were not really sort of, you know, standard books for what they were. They were just the stories that we wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, it's hard in an industry to say like, I know that this doesn't seem like it's going to be a great idea, but it feels like a really great idea to me. So I want to do it. Right. Uh, and I think that it's, it's hard to kind of stay on your, in, stay on top of your instincts that way. Um, but I think, you know, the the books that follow your instincts are the easiest books to write. Like whenever I'm having a really hard time working on something, it's usually because I'm trying to follow someone else's, you know, best interests instead of my own. And right. so whenever that happens, I always like take a step back and think like, why is this so hard to write? And it's usually because I don't really want to write it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a good, you know, thing to look into.
2: That That's interesting because I think a lot, especially when you're talking about like the comics industry or graphic novels, I think a lot of people want to get into that world because they have a dream of working for, you know, DC or Marvel. They want to write superheroes or they want to draw superheroes and they don't really think about, the stories they want to tell. They just have this dream of working for the big two. Um, is that? A, do you think that's a realistic dream for people who are just starting out? I mean, because it's, it is is such a relatively small world with so many people who want to break into it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I write for the big two and yeah. I had no idea that that was even possible. I think if you, you know, I think that it's always possible if you really want to do it. I think, but I do think that you need to have a sense of the story, the specific story you want to tell, like that you want to write a story. I think all the comics that I really love, I can see that it's, you know, that it's so specific to the writer. Like I am a real fan of like comic book writers. Like people always say like, what superhero do you like best? And I like, you know, like I, I tend more towards who's writing it than who the superhero is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. As do I. Um, but, you know, when you talk about superheroes, so you're writing Hulk. Yes. Um, w- who was She-Hulk? Um,
0: who is still She-Hulk? Who is
2: still She-Hulk, you're She's right. both. <laughs> okay. I have to imagine, though, that writing for a major superhero for Marvel comes with a lot more strings than writing your own personal story, where you might have a lot more freedom. So is it more confining? I mean, obviously it's more confining than working on something maybe like this one summer, but is it... Is it frustratingly confining at at times?
0: I mean, it's a challenge. I think, like, on the one hand, like, the main challenge is that you only have 22 pages. Right. So writing to 22 pages is very different than writing a graphic novel. And writing a specific character that has a specific history that you have to adhere to is very different. I mean, I've kind of done all of it now. Like, I've written, uh, you know, like, a major superhero character who has, like, a very specific storyline that I'm staying in continuity Um, when I did Supergirl being super, I had like a lot of freedom. Like I obviously, you know, just couldn't give her whatever powers, you know, I deemed interesting. Like I had some restrictions, but as far as the story went, I had a lot of leeway, which was really great. And I think you have to sort of see, it's like a writing challenge. Like here's, here's all the things that you have to consider in in writing this particular kind of comic. And I think having restrictions is actually really great. Like I actually just was part of this project um, called the creativity project, which is a book um, that's coming out. I think it's not coming out until next year. Um, But the way it worked was that every writer got a prompt and then you had to write a short story based on that prompt. Uh, And some of the prompts were visual and some of them were lines. Um, And it was really great. Like it was really great to kind of, you know, like creativity isn't something that is always just stoked by complete freedom. Actually, having restrictions sometimes can be really great uh, for for storytelling. And I actually love having those restrictions um, because it forces you to think through things. you know, like the yeah. the prompt I got was this was this really amazing illustration by Lisa Brown. And I was like, when I saw the prompt, I was like, I got nothing. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I have nothing to say about this illustration. But then I was like, okay, I must have something. Like there's got to be something that I have to connect. And I went away and thought about it for like a couple of days. And then the story that I came up with is actually one of my favorite stories that I've written in a long time. Really? So, you know, and I would not have written it if it hadn't been for this particular exercise, um, so it was really great. Like, I think it kind of forces you into places that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't already go. And I think it's worth considering that it's like, I think when you're younger and you're an artist, you think like, I have to be able to do what I want to do, or I'm not going to be good. Like if I don't have complete freedom to do exactly what I want to do exactly the way I want to do it, it's not going to be okay. And the truth of the matter is there are lots of writers who work within and do great things within yeah. certain restrictions.
2: Well, I think that's important when, especially for younger, either writers or actors or whatever your craft is, you have, I think you're absolutely right. Those restrictions are what help you think about what it is you're trying to say. Complete freedom sometimes is just too much.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that said, is like having the freedom, you know, having the freedom to like roam and just let your brain go wherever it's going to go. Like I was just in France and I was like, totally in love with this idea of like sitting in a park all day and just letting your mind wander wherever it's gonna go i thought that sounds really nice (laughs) (laughs) it does sound really nice but then i think the thing is it's not to say like i think the first time any i've worked with younger writers before and i know the first time you edit a younger writer there's always this moment where they're like you know like it's like a terrifying thing to have someone tell you like it's not quite there you need to fix this thing. And you want to just be like, but I just did it and it's perfect and I want it to be done. It's like, it will be perfect, will be great, but you have to like dig back in and like fix it and work with it. And that's a really terrifying thing. And I think even just like writing getting hard is like a terrifying thing, but it's not, you know, it's not like a roadblock. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask, because, I mean, part of that creative process, especially when you're working in comics or graphic novels, is working with artists. Somebody, you know, you're turning over your vision to somebody else to sort of bring it to life in a visual medium. Um, yeah. And when, you know, you worked on, you know, um, this one summer in Skim, you you, know, you were working with with Jillian. You had a unique relationship, because I'm assuming you could have just been very frank with her, very honest, you know, being, <laughs> being related. Um, but, you know, when you're working for, you know, uh, comic for DC and Marvel, you know, what's that collaboration like? Have you been pleasantly surprised or is it is it another challenge to overcome?
0: I mean, I think there I mean every collaboration is unique because like you said you have like a unique relationship with the person. I think the actually the way I work with Jillian is very hands-off and I consider it very much that we're sort of because we're co-creating it and she's doing you know, her part of it. So I try not to get in the way of that. Um, And I think that, uh, although with this one summer, we had really great conversations in the middle of the process to kind of like figure out the story and kind of get the story to a place where we felt really good about all the characters involved. Um, But I think that that like that approach to it is the approach I have with all of the work I do, which is to say that I really feel like when I'm working with an illustrator that I have a job and they have a job, they're not illustrating my story. I'm like writing a story with them. Right. So, you know, I try as much as possible in whatever medium, like the thing is when you have 22 pages, you have to be very clear about what it is that needs to happen uh, and that it can happen within the space that you're allotting, right? Like, or you're allotted So it is much more like it's a little more intense because of that. But I feel like, you know, and I've had so many people that I've worked with since I started working for both Marvel and DC that I've been really like, you know, it's been actually really amazing to see like the different things that different illustrators can bring to a project. Um, And I really love that part of it. I really love the freedom of having someone else working with you.
2: Has it ever changed the story? Having a particular relationship with an illustrator saying, oh, we could have totally done something different. And then you go back and rethink what you had.
0: Um, actually, when I worked with, uh, when I worked with uh, Joelle Jones on Supergirl, uh, there was like a part of the story that I had really pictured one way. And then when she finished the illustrations, I was like, oh, I was like, that's, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, and she really, it was like, She kind of like, you know, because the illustrator, I can imagine, like gets all this information and they're like, okay, this is what's happening. And her take on what was happening made so much more sense than what my initial take was (laughs) that I was like, changing gears, totally fine. Like that totally works. We'll go with that. Um, And it really, uh, it really affected the story in this really positive way that I was really happy with. So I think you also have to trust, you know, that you're not the only person who has some something to say, you know,
2: no, yeah, absolutely. um are there any particular characters that you you really want to write?
0: um at the moment, you know, at the moment, I feel like pretty good about all the things that I've been able to write. you should uh, <laughs> <laughs> i um, I mean, I really like superhero stories, so I, I I hope to still get more chances to write more superhero stories. I definitely. Um, I definitely have been in more and more inspired by movies and, uh, would love to do sort of more adaptations. Like I'm really curious to see how the new Heather's, um, television show right. works. Because I keep forgetting I, that's
2: that's a thing that will exist.
0: I know. Right. But I know <laughs> for some people they're like, no, but I'm like, I am super interested in, because I think for all the people who say, well, the original movie will be so much better. I'm like, obviously the original movie will be awesome. And you'll always have the original movie, but I think it's interesting. Like my current curiosity is I am super fascinated by, um, movies that are cast with mostly men. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: and, uh, and, or like that have like what seems to be like a, you know, like a sort of like a rebel take on something, and I'm like, it's not really a rebel take because all the ca- all the characters are who they should be. Like I <laughs> saw the movie Split, which is yeah. about this, you know, this guy with multiple multiple personalities and, um, you know, these these girls, and I was like, why can't it be that we just switch the genders of everybody? Right. right. And doesn't that, that seem like it would be a really cool or like a comic book or a movie that just like takes all the genders of the, all these movies. Yeah. Like I just saw King Arthur oh, and yeah. I was like, why can't you just switch that up? <laughs> you know, like if we can change some things about a story, like there's some things about a story we're okay with moving around. Right. Why don't we just change like a bunch of stuff just, with regards to gender and just see how it plays out.
2: Yeah. Well, I agree with you. Unfortunately, not everybody agrees with you.
0: I know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like I think that the thing is is that you know, we're we're in a diverse, diverse multimedia place where we get to have lots of movies and lots of that's comics true. and lots of books and everybody and, gets their own book. And that's,
2: that's what but that's what kind of bugs me is or the, the mindset that everything has to be for me. You know, like why like okay, that movie's not for you. Let it go. It's for somebody else. Right. It's not for it's not supposed to be for you, you know. And I mean,
0: that, look, I paid and watched split (laughs) like I still (laughs) go to these movies even though I'm like this is clearly not for me right but I love the director so I'm like I'm gonna still go but you know I'm you know I sit through it even though like I don't find it insulting that it's not for me I just know like this is, this is not what I want, but yeah, at some point they'll make what I want.
2: Well, that's because you're mature and open-minded about it.
0: <laughs> I try. I mean, I may not be mature. When I walked out of the movie, I was super pissed, but now I'm like, now I feel better about it, obviously. But...
2: <laughs> All right. Last question. And then I will let you go. Sure. I saved the hardest one for last. If you had to classify yourself as a type of candy, what would you be?
0: Oh my gosh. That is tough. I I think I'm a jawbreaker.
1: Nice.
0: I'm a jawbreaker, and like a one of those old school jawbreakers that you buy and then you never eat it because it's so terrifying and there's so many layers. It like just it just that. sits
2: at like the bottom of the candy bowl or in your pocket or something.
0: Yeah, like I'm like a tooth breaking jawbreaker that's just gonna sit in your drawer forever i love it <laughs> triumphant and <laughs> never eaten
2: i love it marika thank you so much for your time this has just been yeah. such a pleasure yeah
0: thanks a lot for having me
3: so i was reading a little bit about marika tamaki's uh i was just reading through her biography one of the awards she won was a canadian award called the joe schuster award mm-hmm. and that remi- and that a lot of people, a lot of people actually don't. I mean, there might be some people that know, but a lot of people don't realize that he was Canadian and he had a hand in creating Superman. And we have these things in Canada called heritage moments. Have you ever heard of those, I Jamie? Ha- have I talked about? I, these I have not. OK, so when I was a kid, there was these 30 second ads that were created. They were like PSAs almost, but they were created by a board called the Heritage Council or something like that. And they were just basically like snippets into Canadian history, and they were dramatizations, and they would play all the time. So we literally, Canadians of a certain age, like my age, millennials, would remember these playing constantly I'm, on Canadian on T- TV. So
2: these are TV ads?
3: Yeah, they're there. They play on TV. Mm-hmm. You can go on YouTube and see them. They're called Heritage Minutes. Okay. And there was a Superman one about the creation of Superman, and it played all the time, and I practically have it memorized. Okay. And I even have my Facebook. If you go and look on my Facebook, you can do a, you can put like a quote uh-huh. in. And funny enough, my quote, it's not there anymore. I don't think. Oh, yeah, right here. No one's going to read a comic strip about a strong man in tights, Joe. It'll never fly. I have it as my Facebook <laughs> Because anybody that's Canadian that remembers those will remember these minutes. So you have to go watch it. I know that has nothing to do with our guest. But. No, that's amazing. I want to go watch them now. It's pretty cool. I love that idea.
2: <laughs> I love that idea of sort of their, the, the intent there was to highlight the diff, the diversity of the country.
3: Exactly. And it showed things in the past, like how they named Canada or what it meant when it began, just different, a bunch of stuff, the Halifax explosion, you know, just many different, many different things. In our so history. tell
2: me, Justin, how did they name Canada?
3: <laughs> okay. So <laughs> if you believe the heritage, man, <laughs> um, I can't remember who the original explorer was that was with them, uh, but they were walking through with the first nations people. And he goes, what is that down there? That, that group of people. And then the, the first nations man talks back to them and he just, blah, blah. And you can't understand him, but he says, Kanata, and then the guy goes, "Kanata? that must mean the village. And then another guy interrupts. He goes, no, sir. I think he's saying it's the people because <laughs> it kind of means the same thing. Kanata is the, okay. He was referring to the people, but it also means the village. Okay. <laughs> so they just took that and they were like, oh, it must be Canada. Canada. It must be Canada. I love
2: it. <laughs> so you're just the village.
3: Yes, basically. That's what it I means. I love
2: it. Or the people. <laughs> I love it. That's uh, you know, that's pretty cool, actually. I never knew that.
3: You, fellow Canadians, you can correct me. I'm, I only am going off the heritage. You, and why so, would we not believe
2: the heritage <laughs> moments, really? Why would they lie?
3: Exactly. Well, they wouldn't they wouldn't lie <laughs> all right so that's a fun little fact and if marika tamaki's listening she will probably remember the heritage moments as i well.
2: feel like we should make like fun facts about canada a regular feature
3: yes that'd be fun <laughs> totally mr tickle
2: <laughs> there's your there's your question Look. of the week justin who has a question about canada that justin can answer
3: yes a- ask me anything oh, I should do a reddit at you AM totally AM. should can you imagine no one would be on the video. Oh, I, what is this I guy? would totally
2: come in and ask you all kinds of arcane, ridiculous questions that you couldn't answer.
3: <laughs> was Kevin Smith really on
2: Degrassi in Canada? Did that really happen? Was he?
1: <laughs> he I was, didn't know actually. that either.
3: See?
2: <laughs> there you go. You're dropping Canadian all honor. kinds of Canadian knowledge on me.
3: <laughs> well, ask me some questions, folks. I will get to the bottom of it. <laughs> thank, thank you so much for coming back every single week. We hope you enjoyed this interview. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, we're at the GBB podcast as well. You can find me on Twitter at 140 Justin C and
2: I am at the Roarbots.
3: and have a great holiday season. We'll see you next week. Take
2: care. Whatever holiday it happens to be when you're listening. Exactly. (laughs) Okay.
1: This
3: podcast has been a production of the geek dad podcast network. If you've enjoyed this
0: content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.